everyone. Thank you for listening to the Complex Trauma Recovery Podcast. My name is Kina, and I'm super excited to have a guest with me today, um, my friend Janelle, who I have been following on TikTok for a while now and really learning a lot from her content. So I'm super excited to have her on the show. So I am going to read her bio real quick and then have her introduce herself. Um, Before I get started, this episode is going to have a content warning for discussions of suicide. Um, Janelle is a suicidologist and specializes in working with people who are suicidal or have, you know, struggled with being suicidal. So we're going to be talking about those issues and it could be potentially triggering. So please just keep that in mind uh, when you are deciding if you want to listen to this episode. Janelle Cubbage is a psychotherapist in private practice specializing in trauma and PTSD. She has an eclectic approach to therapy, utilizing EMDR, internal family systems, and somatic therapies to help facilitate healing. Janelle earned her master's in clinical mental health counseling from McDaniel College in 2016 and has clinical experience with adolescents in residential settings as well as incarcerated adults. Janelle also works as a suicidologist and is currently appointed as the chair of the Governor's Commission on Suicide Prevention. She was awarded a fellowship in 2019 from the Bloomberg American Health Initiative to pursue her master's in public health with a specialization in violence prevention. So thank you so much for coming and being my guest today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. I love talking about suicide, which probably sounds morbid, but (laughs) it is um, an area and a topic that I'm really passionate about, as is trauma. Yeah, probably I was going to say no more morbid than me saying how much I love talking about trauma and abuse, right? (laughs) Someone's got to talk about it. Um, Cool. So maybe we can just start with you talking a little bit more about your specialization and what kind of work you do. What does it mean to be a suicidologist? So to be a suicidologist, I study suicide. So I study the causes of suicide, or I actually tried not to say the word causes, but contributing factors to suicide, um, protective factors, risk factors, proximal and distal warning signs for suicide. I analyze um, systems to help understand if there are any gaps that we need to address and make recommendations towards. And I um, just hopefully like contribute to the literature. I am very interested in how um, suicide impacts minoritized communities. So in 2020, I co-authored a paper that was published in JAMA Psych about the disparate impacts of suicide on Black Marylanders early on in the pandemic. So my contribution to the field moving forward is likely going to be more specific to racism and suicide and that intersection. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, so you you kind of look at the intersection of suicide, suicidality and trauma and PTSD, and then like racism and social issues that contribute to those experiences? Yes, Um, trauma and suicide prevention are social justice issues. So all of my work incorporates social justice. I love that. Okay, can you talk a little bit more about what that means for people that might be a little bit confused about that? Like how are trauma and PTSD and suicide social justice issues and what does that mean for you? A lot of social justice issues all social justice issues have to do with human rights and the minoritization of certain communities. So minoritization is not necessarily speaking to 
groups that are numerical minorities. When we talk about minoritization, we're talking about groups that have been identified um, as an other in society, and they're intentionally excluded from holding positions of power and also intentionally excluded from receiving certain resources, privileges, et cetera, um, that society receives and experiences. So we see minoritization with uh, communities that are people of the global majority, otherwise referred to as people of color. We also see that with individuals who are LGBTQ. Um, women, to an extent, are minoritized. Um, so that is important and we can't unwed that minoritization from any of the work that we do. So that minoritization is upheld by systems, all of the systems that we interact with in our day to day. Um, so those become social justice issues. How do we achieve equity and justice for people who have been minoritized and pushed to the fringe and margins of our society? Um, so therapy is no different. Therapy is political because the systems that my clients interact with have caused many of them trauma. Um, and the same is with suicide prevention. When we look at a lot of the contributing factors to suicide um, and ways that we can reduce suicide, a lot of them are tied to human rights and social justice, marriage equality, using people's correct pronouns, um, gender affirming care, culturally affirming care, having a livable wage, having affordable housing, things of that nature. Those are all social justice issues and human rights issues. And they really cannot be separated from the work that we do. So I like to embody that in all of my approaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We tend to, or at least kind of like Western mental health tends to veer towards this like individualizing, pathologizing thing where it's like, well, if someone is depressed or someone is suicidal or someone is addicted or like whatever the mental health issue may be, then like that rests solely in their own mind and on their own like individual issues. And we know that that's not true, you know, especially from all of the research that shows that these risk factors contribute to all these different mental health issues. So I know that, you know, living in poverty increases a lot of the risk, uh, risk factors for those different mental health issues. And I would presume that being in like a, how do you pronounce it, minoritized, is that right? Okay, minoritized, I haven't heard it phrased quite like that before. So people in minoritized groups, um, I'm assuming, tend to experience like higher rates of risk for, um, for being suicidal or for depression, is that correct? Absolutely. So um, people who are LGBTQ have one of the highest um, disparate impacts with suicidal ideation attempts and deaths but it's hard to collect data on that um, other than through surveys because that's not information that we collect on death certificates. Hmm. So unless there's a survey done or a fatality review process, it's really hard to have solid data on what the true impact is in those communities. Historically, in the Black community, um, researchers have thought that there was some protective mechanism um, that was keeping the rate of suicide among Black people lower than it was to their white counterparts. 
I really question whether that was the case. Um, we're actually seeing that change. Um, the, the rate among Black youth is increasing uh, steadily and, and quickly, more quickly than any other racial group um, of the same age range. Wow. So I think that there's a lot of um, kind of racist stereotypes that might contribute to those presumptions, um, like the strong Black woman stereotype. Um, I think that stigma plays a role in that. And we also have to look at other factors impacting the Black community, especially Black youth, like homicide. So the disparate impact of homicide on Black youth can kind of skew our numbers with other mm. causes of death and make it seem like a, a smaller issue than it really is. Yeah. So um, we see that uh, it appears lower sometimes when you're looking at data for when you're comparing racial and ethnic groups in terms of suicide. Um, but you kind of have to look deeper for it. So in 2019, um, nationally, we experienced the first decrease in the suicide rate in 20 years. Wow. Um, yeah. So people, I'm not very excited about it. <laughs> so does that people mean that it excited. had just been steadily going up for 19 years consecutively? It has been, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't seem like um, a very good thing. <laughs> that seems pretty alarming. It is alarming. The reason I'm not excited about the decrease is when I actually look deeper at the data. So when I looked at the data broken down by racial and ethnic groups, um, the decrease was pretty much exclusively experienced among white Americans. So every mm. other racial group experienced an increase in suicide deaths. Um, the unknown category uh, did experience a decrease, but it was 15 between years, which is not significant, talking from a statistical perspective. Right, right. Um, so, you know, even though we collectively as a nation experienced a decrease in our suicide rate, we collectively as a nation did not experience a decrease in suicide rates. Right. So um, I think that's also another issue and kind of misnomer. Um, when looking at these issues, especially from a social justice perspective, is the way that we look at data um, and our internal biases can can influence that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So um, in terms of approaching these issues of suicide and suicide rates from a social justice perspective and also a trauma-informed perspective, um, I know we talked a little bit about how, you know, being trauma-informed and social justice are very connected because people are traumatized by systems of oppression like racism and homophobia and different things like that. Um, but for you as a clinician, kind of from a clinical standpoint, what does it mean for you to work with the issue of suicidality from a trauma informed perspective and kind of with your specialization in trauma and PTSD, how does that connect to your focus on suicide? So suicide is something that I expect to be present more often than not in my clinical work, just because of the link between suicidality and having experienced trauma. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about 
you know, my thoughts on why experiencing trauma can increase risk for suicide in addition to some of the well-established reasons for that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one, I go in with that expectation that there is probably a greater likelihood than not that um, my client is thinking about suicide, will think about suicide during the course of our work together or has in the past or has had a suicide attempt. Um, you know, that causes a lot of anxiety and fear for clinicians, I think, um, which I, I'm not going to go on that, that rant and tirade, mm -hmm. but, um, so one, having that assumption, two, also recognizing and thinking about the systems that they've probably touched, and if they do have those experiences, how those systems probably created trauma with trauma for them around this issue of suicidality. Um, so there's this notion that, you know, if you tell a therapist you're thinking about suicide, that they're automatically going to send you to the emergency department or call the police on you. Um, and I think that is true for some therapists that aren't well-trained and aren't well-prepared to handle this clinical issue. Yeah. Um, and they inadvertently cause trauma by doing right. that. Yeah. So being aware of that and how that trauma and those traumatic experiences contribute to their willingness to, you know, disclose about suicidal ideation and such to you. Um, you know, the experience at the hospital can also be traumatizing. Um, I mean, that varies, obviously. It's an individual experience, but, you know, thinking about going to a place and being there for three days and, you know, being cut off from your support network and you don't know the people there, it, it can produce trauma for people. Yeah. So being mindful of that and always thinking about that in terms of planning when a crisis presents of how can I help this person stay safe in the least restrictive environment and the least traumatic environment yeah. um, is really important. There's also the trauma of lived experience. So if someone's had a suicide attempt, that in and of itself is traumatic. Yeah. Um, if someone knows someone who's attempted suicide or died by suicide, that's a very traumatic loss as well. So keeping that in mind and just kind of thinking about how all of these factors are intersecting with one another yeah. and, and how that impacts the way that my client shows up in the therapy room with me and um, how that impacts their ability to trust me um, yeah. are all things that I take into consideration. The other thing that I think is really key with being trauma-informed and also responding to suicidality is giving clients the autonomy over what happens. Um, you know, I always approach that from a collaborative framework. You know, if we are, if a client discloses to me that they're thinking about suicide, my first step is not, okay, I'm going to do this assessment to see what your risk level is. My response is, tell me what's going on. Like, yeah. what's contributing to you feeling this way? Um, and talking through that and hearing that, hearing their story. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, posing to them at some point, 
you know, what would be helpful to you in this moment? Do you want to keep talking? Do you want to move on to developing a safety plan? You know, we can talk about you going to a walk-in crisis center or an emergency department if you feel like it would be helpful to you to have further evaluation. So <clears throat> even though I'm presenting those three, um, those three options, I'm still presenting them with options about right. what happens. Yeah. And in doing so, you know, I'm still ensuring that we're working towards maintaining their safety, um, but I'm giving them, you know, the opportunity and the ability to dictate how that looks for them. Right. Yeah. It's more agency and empowerment focused, which, you know, hearing you talk about that, I was thinking about how just having a space where a client feels safe to like explore the way that they are feeling and thinking without that fear of being immediately like having the police called or having an ambulance called or whatever. I think probably that must feel like a big relief to a lot of people because I've also seen a lot of people talk about that kind of like compounded trauma where because of past experiences with like, well, I just closed that I was feeling suicidal to a therapist. And then it led to this like chain of events of these secondary traumas with being, you know, hospitalized or, you know, having all these like other things happen that maybe weren't really in my agency or like I didn't feel empowered to make decisions during that experience. Um, it makes it really hard to disclose, like you said, and I've seen a lot of people online talk about like, you know, that fear of like, not wanting to say the wrong thing or kind of set off the, you know, the, the silent alarm that's going to lead to these like series of events. So I imagine that that's a pretty um, impactful benefit for clients, just to have a more like supportive um, open environment where it's like you you are free to genuinely share how you feel and what you're thinking about and trust that like your agency and your autonomy isn't just going to be ripped away from you. There's still going to be a process of like collaboration and mutuality and empowerment. Yeah. And again, I am always thinking about how my response could contribute to existing trauma or create new trauma for someone. And we also have to think about the future, right? Like not just getting through and keeping them safe through this crisis, but if they were to have suicidal thoughts again, is the way that I'm responding and supporting them in this situation going to lead to them feeling safe enough to disclose again in the future to someone? Or is it going to lead to them feeling like they can't disclose to someone in the future? So keeping that in mind, I think is also really important. Um, in addition to like giving them that agency and just overall not freaking out for yeah. <laughs> a lack of a better term. Um, you know, I think in some aspects, suicidality is part of the human condition and that many of us will experience suicidality on a spectrum. I think a lot of people don't realize um, more passive thoughts of suicidal ideation. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my view on things is really just trying to work collaboratively with them, make sure that they maintain their agency. And, you know, in that approach, I'm very fortunate that I've never had to make a call that took their agency away from them. You know, when we worked collaboratively, we talked about the options and what they felt would be best and most supportive for them 
ultimately they followed those recommendations because they had agency over the decision. Right. So I'm not at um, the point of needing to call the cops or the ambulance or not allowing them to leave my office. And I hope that I never have to do that. Yeah. Um, and the other thing with telehealth, you know, that adds a, another layer to responding to these situations. You know, if I felt that a client was in danger um, and I was seeing them via telehealth, I certainly would not call emergency services and not tell them that they're coming. I've seen stories about that happening and, and that's traumatic oh, and wow. scary. And I think it can really escalate the situation in a way that's, you know, ultimately not going to result in safety. So, yeah. So that's when people are not even told that the cops are being called or that the emergency services are being called, which, yeah, that seems very extra violating to me, you know, because I mean, in my training, it's always been like, I guess I'm thinking more of the example of mandatory reporting with um, like reporting to child protective services, because that's where a lot of my work experience has been. But, you know, we always were trained and would tell our clients, like, don't worry, there's never going to be a surprise report. Like, if anything ever has to be reported, like, you will know ahead of time, you'll be included in the process, because it is super traumatic to have someone that you're working with as, like, a helping professional, and then for them to make a decision like that, and for you to not even be aware that it's happening. So I could see that really messing with people's trust in therapy if they had an experience like that. Exactly. And I think any time that we have to make those kinds of decisions, like you said, it shouldn't be a surprise to them. And, and that's something that I cover in my intake sessions when we talk about limits of confidentiality. You know, I always tell clients, if I ever feel the need that I need to make a mandated report or I need to you know, break confidentiality to help keep you safe. Like I'm going to talk to you about that before I do it. I'm not going to just do it. And, you know, you end up with someone at your door or, or whatever the case may be. So that information and making sure that they're informed of that, I think really goes a long way. Yeah. And that's trauma informed, you know, it's, right. it's <laughs> making sure there aren't undue surprises and undue stress and anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, like that, that trauma-informed practice doesn't just go out the window the second that you're concerned about someone's safety, right? That's probably one of the times that that trauma-informed practice and informed consent and empowerment are like the most important so you don't Absolutely. unnecessarily re-traumatize someone. Yeah. Absolutely. Makes sense. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what you were saying about your ideas about how trauma leads to increased risk for suicide? Yeah, so I mean you know, that relationship between having experienced trauma and that being a risk factor for suicide is well established by research in the literature. Um, so I think one, like obviously trauma, you know, impacts our sense of safety and well-being in the, the world. Um, our nervous system responding to things can be really overwhelming at times. Um, if, you know, nightmares are a part of the symptoms that someone's experiencing from trauma, you know, not even being able to go to sleep, you know, where most of us are able to have our brains turn off and kind of have a respite from the real world. Um, and that really starts to wear on people. But I especially think about the for foreshortened future that is a key feature of trauma. So feeling like 
you're not going to live very long. Um, you don't have a very long life ahead of you. You know, I think that is something that contributes to um, the likelihood of maybe being involved in community violence, um, but also with suicide, because if you feel like you're not going to have a very long life as it is, that can really lead to careless um, behaviors that could mm -hmm. put you in danger. It can lead to hopelessness, you know, if there's not something for you to aspire to. And hopelessness is a big component of suicide, um, feeling like there are no options for you left and things are not going to get better. Um, so I think that's definitely one aspect that contributes to that relationship between having experienced trauma and, and suicide risk. Yeah. I think the other thing that contributes to that is, you know, depending on the traumatic experience, a lot of times, you know, those of us who have experienced trauma um, feared for our lives or came close to dying or saw someone who died or was dying. Um, and constant exposure to death um, can actually decrease our emotional response to it. Mm. So it can decrease the fear that we might feel around death. Um, there's an interesting study that showed um, that it was on uh, gun owners and it showed that the more gun owners had actually like fired their weapon, whether it was at a gun range or whatever, um, the less afraid they were of death, hmm. which if we look at the uh, interpersonal theory of suicide, um, that posits that um, perceived burdensomeness, thwarted belongingness, and acquiring the capability for suicide kind of come together and that creates the factors necessary for making a suicide attempt. Hmm. And so if you have foreshortened future, um, you're less fearful of death, uh, that can, you know, increase someone's capability for suicide, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Can you repeat what those two factors were? Was it thwarted sense of belonging? And what was the other one that you mentioned? Perceived burdensomeness. Perceived burden, yeah. Trauma also creates mm -hmm. those feelings in many people too. So um, yeah, there's a lot of overlap there between direct impacts of trauma and that model of uh, suicide. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I had thought about with CPTSD specifically and kind of the literature that I've read about CPTSD and suicide, that helplessness and hopelessness are two of the main things that can emerge from CPTSD that can really increase those risks of suicide because, you know, with CPTSD by, by nature as opposed to PTSD, where you could have PTSD from one standout event, like, you know, you witness something really scary, you got in a really bad car crash, like whatever, 
but with CPTSD by nature, it was recurring and ongoing and chronic. And so that chronic repeating trauma tends to create really heightened levels of like helplessness and hopelessness. A lot of the times, especially because you really are trapped in the situation or the environment where the trauma is repeating, you know, whether that is children growing up in abusive homes where like there's helplessness and hopelessness that comes from just being a child and not really having the means to escape or protect yourself or you know other situations that commonly lead to CPTSD are like being incarcerated being in you know domestic violence relationships and those are both situations where someone feels you know helpless and trapped in their mobility their ability to protect themselves or to you know uh, kind of like fight back or flee like fight or flight are cut off from them and so that's when you get sometimes like that freeze response where you just feel like helpless and hopeless and like there's nothing that I can really do to change my circumstances and so I can see from that that it makes a lot of sense how those kinds of kind of recurring prolonged traumatic experiences and that feeling of helplessness and not being able to escape would lead to at least suicidal ideation for a lot of people as kind of, you know, when you don't feel like you have the power to change your circumstances, then maybe that is the only thing that feels like an ability to escape for, for certain people. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the model shows it's usually shown with circles. So the perceived burdensomeness and thwarted belongingness come together and that can uh, produce the desire for suicide. And then when the capability for suicide is added to that, you know, that's when the risk is really substantial. And with a lot of the factors um, or examples that you included, they also speak directly to thwarted belongingness, you know, um, that underlying message being that I'm alone. So if you're growing, you're a child growing up in an abusive household, you know, the abuse is generally at the hand of your caregiver, your parents, someone who's supposed to love and protect you. Um, so that is a very lonely experience. Um, you know, it, our brain does some really interesting things that help us to still be able to bond to those caregivers in those types of situations. But you know, deep down underneath those protective mechanisms, is there truly a sense of belonging in that family unit with that child? Um, in the example of incarceration, you are very literally being removed from society mm -hmm. and being told that you do not belong in society. And then you have people, um, if you have to go up for parole, that get to make a decision about whether you get to re-enter right. society. Or if you're a felon and you're, you literally don't have the same rights as other people once you leave, like you're literally separated from a sense of like cultural belonging in that way. Exactly. It's almost like a new caste or a new, new um, hierarchy within our society where, you know, the message being sent is you are not the same as us. You are not on our level. Um, so really thinking about those underlying messages that are sent from these systems, from actions, I think is really important to consider, as well as that burdensomeness comes in. Um, I feel like, you know, really those things go hand in hand. It's, I can't think of many situations where one would exist without the other. So in the case of that child who's being abused, you know, a lot of abuse is, you know, well, I provide for your basic needs, which we all know is like the bare minimum yeah. <laughs> caregiver to do. Right. Um, but what that's 
send what message that's sending is that you're being a burden to me you're ungrateful you're look at what I'm providing for you and that's still not enough um or if the parent like blames the kid for their stress level again um being told that those things are your fault you know send that message that you are a burden um, in the case of being incarcerated, a lot of people that are incarcerated feel bad because they feel like they're a burden to their family, either um, because they brought shame on their family in their minds, or they played a key role in the family unit in terms of um, providing for the family or, you know, being a caregiver or something of that nature, and now they're no longer able to fulfill that role, that can really increase burdensomeness. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, the thwarted belongingness, the perceived burdensomeness may not be true. So like those may be um, internal narratives, um, but, you know, there are also external narratives that contribute to those. Family can blatantly say, you know, you are a burden on me or, you know, in the, the case of that caregiver, like you're stressing me out, you're ungrateful, you're this, right. you're that. So. Um, I think that's important. And especially in the case of maybe when those things might not be true. Um, and I don't even like saying not that they're not true because they are very true to the person experiencing them. Right. But, um, you know, when you're in crisis and you're experiencing that, things look and feel very different than um, what a person from the outside looking in might, might see and observe. So I think trauma also contributes to that because um, even if you do have supports in your life, you can still feel very alone and feel very isolated from them. A lot of times, you know, when we develop those protective mechanisms that only allow us to connect with people to a certain extent, you know, that can feel very lonely. So yeah, there's a lot of ways that trauma intersects with, with that model. In yeah. And the model, you said that it's called the interpersonal sui suicide model. Was that what it's called? The interpersonal theory of suicide by okay. Thomas Joyner. Okay. Yeah. I will have to look that up. So um, just to give like a overview of what that model is, is there like a, a way that you could paraphrase it or like the, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing that these main components have to do with people's perceptions of their place in their communities and, you know, the strengths of their relationships and their perception of, you know, the, how they are valued by their communities and by people around them. But um, maybe there's a better way that you could summarize it for us. Yeah, so the cliff notes are that if a person um, is experiencing perceived burdensomeness, so they feel like a burden to those around them, if they have thwarted belongingness, so they feel alone, those two factors can come together and produce the desire for suicide. So, you know, thinking about suicide. Um, and then when capability for suicide is added, so, you know, we talked about that reduced fear of death. Um, foreshortened future, uh, having access to lethal means, all of those things contribute to capability of suicide. So when those three factors come together, that's when the, the risk substantially increases for a suicide attempt or death. 
Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And I know that, I mean, the features that you talked about that contribute to that risk are definitely really core features for CPTSD for a lot of people, you know, the feelings of being burdensome. I've talked in other episodes about how that's like a really common result just um, from neglect, you know, from emotional neglect in the home, because if you have caregivers that consistently do not meet your needs and, you know, are not able to meet your needs, then children tend to internalize that to be like, well, my needs are clearly too much and unmeetable. And like, I'm, you know, my feelings are too big and I ask for too much and like internalize all those messages. And then often that can get like reproduced in other relationships as those children get older and you know uh lead to like abusive or neglectful romantic relationships that kind of like reinforce those narratives um and the feeling of like loneliness and alienation and separation um i can see definitely how for people with cptsd you know the risk of being suicidal could definitely go substantially up and it just seems like it's a very stigma stigmatized topic in a lot of ways so I'm glad that like I feel like this is just such a good conversation to have to kind of reduce some of that stigma because like you were saying even within therapy people sometimes feel that stigma of like I don't know if I can bring this up or these bad things are going to happen and it's like well if there's anywhere that we should be able to bring it up it's in therapy but people have that like fear you know of these different consequences um so I think people even like admitting that they're struggling with suicidal ideation can be really challenging because of the like, like you said, the freaking out response, you know, that they might get not just from therapists, but just from friends and family. I mean, and it's understandable because for people without the training in it, it's a scary thing to hear, you know, of course, like it's scary to hear that someone that you love is thinking about killing themselves. But I think we need to be able to like have that dialogue in a more open way in order to reduce, you know, the risk of people actually going through with suicidal ideation. Um, Because I imagine that that kind of like, oh my God, reaction really reduces people's ability to like speak about this and get the help that they need. Yeah. And I think also, you know, a mindset shift is needed of not, when someone discloses to you that they're thinking about suicide, like not thinking, oh my gosh, they're going to kill themselves think about the fact that they're sharing that with you, you know, that's a positive thing, that they're reaching out to you, they're trying to talk to you about it, that's, that's a good thing, that's positive. Um, The other thing that I've seen that happens in those situations a lot is that people attempt to shame them, which is not, it's not a useful tactic, and that can be really re-traumatizing for someone with CPTSD that already has so much shame around their experiences and they're very existent. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what about your family? Think about your family. How are they going to feel? The other issue with that, besides being very shameful and unsupportive, is, uh, you know, in most cases they have, people thinking about suicide think that their family and loved ones would be better off with them. Again, we have to remember that they feel like a burden to those around them. So in their minds, you know, them no longer being around would be better for their friends, family, and loved ones. So that's just just not really an effective response. (laughs) Not at all. Yeah. So what would you suggest for people listening um, about the best way to respond to someone that shares suicidal feelings or ideation with like friends or family? I would start off by thanking them for sharing that with you because it probably took a lot of courage on their end to, to do that because of how stigmatized 
uh, suicide is as a topic, and also that fear of how someone's going to respond. So, you know, thank them for sharing that with you. That's a very vulnerable spot to be in. And then I would just kind of ask them, like, what's going on that's making you feel this way? Hear what's going on for them. I know that your mind is immediately going to jump to, we need to go to the hospital or call a therapist or whatever. Like, you will get there, trust me. But, you know, you are talking to a human. So, you know, stay there and be present with them and, and hear about what's been going on in their life that's leading to them feeling that way. And then, you know, after listening to them, you know, be sure to validate them. Don't, <clears throat> I think a lot of times well-meaning people will say things, but so-and-so cares about you or, you know, you just got that scholarship, like things are just beginning for you. You have your whole life ahead. There will be more partners or whatever the case may be. And they say those things, you know, from a place of good faith, they mean well but it's invalidating the person and how they feel. So just being mindful about how you do respond when they are sharing with you the things that they're going through. And then, you know, you can let them know, hey, I'm so happy that you shared all of this with me. This is really beyond, you know, my training and um, my ability to help keep you safe. I think it would be really helpful if we could get you connected with someone who who does know how to respond to these situations yep. and then talk to them about what those options are. That I would say is like the gold standard of, of responding to someone who's thinking about suicide. Yeah. Yeah. So just validating and not like arguing with them or guilt tripping them or going like immediate crisis alarm mode and just kind of holding space and empathizing, it sounds like. Yeah, um, because I think a lot of times when people hear that, they see their role as having to convince the person why they need to stay alive. Um, and that's not really your role in that moment. Um, that person will identify those things uh, a lot of times through talking and, and telling their story. Um, and even if we point those things out, that's not necessarily effective because that person might not, that might not feel true to them in right. those moments. So. Yeah. And I've heard that in general, you know, it's a lot more effective if someone actually comes up with their own reasons and their own motivations for, you know, why they're choosing to get help or to stay alive rather than have those reasons kind of like projected onto them. Like, well, what about, you know, your mom or your sister or whatever? Yeah. And I think that, again, those things create a lot of shame when we try to come up with those things for someone, because then it's like, okay, they're telling me that I should want to be alive uh, because of my caregiver, my parent, um, but my care caregiver and parent was my abuser. But now I feel ashamed that I don't feel that way towards that person. Um, so we have to be really careful and mindful of people's experiences, even if they haven't disclosed that to us. And again, yeah. I think that goes back to the principles of being trauma-informed. Yeah. Um, just going into these situations, knowing that this person has likely experienced trauma. Yeah, yeah. 
that all makes sense. Um, I think my last question for tonight is what are the changes that you would like to see in the mental health field regarding how suicide and people that are suicidal are, you know, talked about and treated and the services that they receive? You talked a little bit about some of the cultural shifts that you'd like to see in terms of, you know, addressing the systemic and political issues that are contributing to people's mental health. Um, and I know you mentioned at the beginning of the interview that a lot of therapists are not really adequately trained on how to handle someone that is suicidal without kind of immediately like escalating to calling police or crisis services. But yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about like what kinds of shifts you envision in mental health in the future with this. So one, um, programs need to have a course on suicide that is a core component of the curriculum. Um, Two, they need to stop teaching suicide as a legal and ethical issue and address it as a clinical one. Yes, of course, suicide is still an ethical issue. We have ethical responsibilities there, but only teaching it as a primarily legal and ethical issue contributes to a lot of the anxiety that cl clinicians feel around yeah, suicide. Yeah, yeah. And it, doesn't it does not prepare them for responding to these situations at all. Um, which ironically is what would help you fulfill your legal and ethical obligations in that situation. Right. It's a very interesting conundrum. Yeah. Um, so I think that starts with the programs. I think licensing boards should require a certain number of continuing education credits that are related to suicide um, for licensure renewal. Um, I really want to see clinicians challenge themselves and think about you know, ask yourself, you know, if you've had an experience where a client has disclosed to you that they're suicidal and reflect on that experience and what came up for you in that experience. And if you haven't had that experience, think about truly, if a client came to you and told you that they were suicidal, sit and notice, you know, what's going on in your body, what's coming up for you and what is that related to? Is that related to a fear that you need to protect yourself so that you don't get sued? Is that related to um, feelings of inadequacy and incompetence because your program didn't prepare you for how to respond to these situations? Um, is it bringing up personal experiences that you have had, either you know yourself or maybe a friend or a loved one? Um, really sitting and sitting with that and thinking and working through any biases that they might be holding. You know, there's a lot of misconceptions and stereotypes around suicide, like people are attention seeking. If they tell me they're not serious, you know, really doing that internal work and exploring what biases that you're holding that are um, interfering with your ability to work with people who are experiencing suicidal ideation. Um, I would say that those are the biggest shifts that I think need to happen in addition to which kind of speaks to the previous examples clinicians being comfortable um, responding clinically to this and creating an environment and atmosphere where clients feel comfortable and safe disclosing this um, and when I'm talking about clinicians feeling comfortable and competent I'm not saying that you're not going to be anxious I still sure. get anxious feeling this way. Of course, it's 
it's nerve wracking. It's a great sense of responsibility. You don't want to see this person, you know, die. Um, that is a normal response. You should feel anxiety around sure. that, right? Yeah. Um, but you should not feel so anxious that you are rendered unable to respond right. um, in a helpful and supportive manner. So those are yeah. the biggest shifts that I think need to happen. Yeah. Hearing you say that kind of made it click for me that like, you're right that um, the the training, at least in my program about suicide was very much focused on like legal and ethical responsibilities. Like it has a lot to do with like drilling into your head. Like this is when you're ethically mandated to make a report. You know, this is when HIPAA no longer applies or when, you know, when you're um, there's exemptions from HIPAA in these specific scenarios. It was a very like um, kind of like logistical legal study and not nearly as like personal or humanistic or like clinical, like you said, um, as a lot of the other studies. So that's, that's really interesting. And I can see why that would kind of almost like program into clinicians heads. Like when, when this issue comes up, you know, you're no longer in clinical mode, you're in like legal, make sure I follow like the letter of the law mode. And that can be like this really big disconnect probably for clients. I'm sure that they can often sense that kind of like jarring, you know, transition from like, I'm in like a clinical connecting to you as a human mindset to like, what are the laws and how do I follow them mindset? You know, I'm sure that that you can pick up on that as a client when it's an uncomfortable juxtaposition for a clinician, right? Absolutely. And especially when you've experienced trauma, we've learned to pick up on all of these cues to sense, you know, if we're safe and things of that nature. So, you know, having those heightened uh, senses is even more reason why clinicians need to find a sense of comfort with dealing with these things. And again, you know, the majority of us are going to have some sort of experience with suicidal ideation, even if it's on the passive end. So you have likely already worked with clients who were suicidal, um, and you're likely to encounter them in the future in your clinical work. So it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, yeah. and will you be prepared? Yeah, totally. Well said. Cool. Well, I think those are all my questions that I have. Thank you so much for coming. And I'm glad we finally got to do this interview. I've been meaning to do it for a while. So I'm really glad I got to pick your brain about this. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I will link to um, Janelle's like social media and where you can find her work in the bio of this episode for anyone that wants to go check her page out. Thank you.